Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week we're doing something a little differently to look back at some of 2020's biggest stories. And to do so, we're going across the Atlantic to speak with RTE's Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, on what it's been like reporting in Trump's America for the past three years. But obviously, we want to focus a little bit more on the last 12 months. However unusual 2018 and 2019 were, 2020 was obviously like no other. A US presidential election happening as the country battled the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll also look at what's ahead for Joe Biden in 2021, battling a lot of the same problems, especially around the pandemic, where parts of America are suffering so terribly. Brian, thanks so much for joining us here today. Happy to be here, Sinead. Thanks for having me. So you took up your role of Washington correspondent at the very start of 2018. Thinking back to that time, did you think there was a possibility that you would be reporting on a new president come 2021? Well, I kept flip-flopping on that question. And it wasn't because I was a flip-flopper, it's because the situation kept changing. It was a roller coaster. So if you recall in 2018, it was all about the Mueller investigation. And you thought Donald Trump, maybe he was in really, really big trouble here. And we saw family members being questioned. We saw close associates being arrested, charged and jailed. And you're thinking, oh my God, is this the end of him? Is he gonna be in big trouble? Then the Mueller report comes out. It kind of clears him, it kind of doesn't. But anyway, he survives it, he comes through it no major damage, no big deal. And you kind of think, oh, actually, maybe he's fine. Maybe this isn't going to damage any of his re-election chances. But then no sooner was the Mueller report out and he was in trouble again for his calls with the Ukrainian president. He was impeached by the House of Representatives. And then again, you're thinking, surely this will damage his re-election chances. But again, he comes through that and he was cleared by the Senate. His approval ratings ticked up a little. He seemed to come out of it unscathed. And you thought, here we go again. He's bulletproof. Everything is fine. I suppose what really changed then was at the start of this year, 2020, you had this booming US economy. You had the Democrats with this big, big field of candidates. They were kind of tearing each other apart. You couldn't really see a clear winner emerging out of them or someone who could certainly take on Donald Trump. And I think at the start of 2020, yes, I thought this guy's got to be fine. Uh, He'll get back in. He's still very popular. The economy is doing well. Then the pandemic hit and his handling of the pandemic, as we know, was hugely problematic. The numbers in the US soared, the most developed, the wealthiest country in the world, ending up having the highest death rates in the world, some of the highest cases in the world. Him coming out with these bizarre suggestions of maybe injecting bleach, the economy crashing all around him, and he was in big, big trouble. But I will say this, you look back on the election, he didn't have a disaster. He didn't fall off a cliff. He got the biggest vote ever of a Republican candidate. He got the biggest vote ever of a sitting president. He got the second biggest vote ever of any candidate. The only problem for him is that Joe Biden got a bigger vote. You mentioned the economy there, Brian. Is that Trump's biggest win of his uh, four years in the presidency? Or is it the fact that he escaped some of those things you were talking about, the impeachment, Ukraine, the Mueller investigation? What would you count as his biggest wins? He would certainly point to the economy as his biggest win. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was doing well. Credit where credit is due. It obviously fell off a cliff because of the coronavirus. You could say that's not his fault. The He tried as much as he could to keep the economy open. And that was maybe one of his problems when it came to dealing with the coronavirus, that he had this obsession with keeping the economy open, keeping everything up and running, and not shutting things down, maybe in the way things should have been shut down. But what we had also previously, earlier in his tenure, he, of course, 
uh, cut taxes, which he would see as a big, big thing as well. The Democrats would have said, well, actually, that tax cut was more aimed at your wealthy friends. He would argue that it was a tax cut for all Americans. He would certainly point to those as big achievements. On a foreign policy front, you probably saw in quite recent weeks, we had quite a few uh, agreements being signed between Israel and several Iranian, uh, Arab nations. So these were normalization of relation agreements that many foreign policy analysts would say were actually good achievements and were something to be celebrated. So again, a case of credit where credit is due. And then from a Donald Trump perspective, you know, we in the West and in Europe may not like it, but he said he was going to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord, and he did. He said he was going to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal, and he did. He said he was going to tear up international treaties. He was going to unpick trade deals. He did all of those things, and whether or not we liked them, he said he was going to do them, and he kept his promises. There's probably a member of Trump's team somewhere out there from 2016 who had a hand in making the Make America Great slogan again. If they were assessing Trump's four years, do you think they'd say, yes, he achieved that? I would give him an A grade. Yes, they will point to this America first policy of we are America. We don't need this international world out there. We can go it alone and we are going to tear up these international agreements. We are going to do our own thing. We're going to prioritize American manufacturing. And remember Donald Trump, the master marketeer, going to coal mining towns and steel towns in rural Pennsylvania and telling them, I'm going to reopen your mills and your mines. He didn't, but the message was strong enough to give him this boost and to get him over the line. And I keep coming back to this fact. Yes, he lost the election, but he still had a really good election. He got 74 million votes, a massive, massive vote. He remains extremely popular. So you talk about what rating, what mark his team would give him. I think they would certainly look back in the four years and say, yeah, A1, we did what we said we would do. And of course, the big question then is, you know, with 74 million votes in the bank, what's going to happen over the next four years? I don't think Donald Trump's going to disappear. The one thing people acknowledge Donald Trump for is his ability to have spoken to people in America who previously felt unloved and unheard by other administrations. People in mining towns, people in steel mills. He went to them, he talked to them. They fell in love with what he was saying, but also in love with him. But did he actually bring the mines back? Did he actually bring steel jobs back? Have those lives of the people who he got behind and who got behind him, have their lives changed in material ways? No, not in that sense. He didn't reopen the steel mills and the coal mines. And I've spent quite a few times in rural Pennsylvania going up there and speaking to people. And the sense that I used to get is that many of the people who voted for him back in 2016 and backed him again in 2020, way back four years ago, he was coming to their town preaching that I'm going to reopen this steel mill and, and make you great again and make this, this, this city great again. Deep down, many of them knew he actually wasn't going to do that, that the world had moved on, but they liked what he was saying. He was harping back to a positive time in their lives, to a memory of this powerful American nation once upon a time, a memory that they missed, a time that they forgot. He was preaching to them. Back in 2016, Hillary Clinton said, I know all these coal mines have closed and I'm going to close more of them. We're moving away from this. Donald Trump was preaching a different message. He didn't reopen those those industries. But I never got a sense when I went to these towns that he lied to us. He promised us he'd open these things. And now I'm not voting for him again. A lot of the people I met voted for him in 2016. They were going to vote for him again in 2020, knowing full well that he didn't restore 
the things he was going to restore, but he certainly sold the message and sold the promise and sold this idea that they really did want to latch on to. Has America changed in the last three years? Or is it that the places that you have visited and done the reporting on the ground are just so different from D.C.? Yes. And what's so important is to get out of D.C. And I always say to people, D.C. is this Democrat bubble where everybody had a Joe Biden sign in their lawn. Four years ago, everybody had a Hillary Clinton sign in their lawn. You have to get out of the bubble and you have to go far. And actually, on a practical level, that was one of the challenges for us in 2020. Obviously, travel was far more restricted. You weren't, you could get on an airplane, but you know, what wasn't the best thing in the world to do during a pandemic. We had to take precautions. We had to be careful. So our way of getting out of that DC bubble was to visit places like Pennsylvania, because you don't have to go far from DC. You don't have to go to Alabama or rural Montana. You can go to West Virginia, which is just over the road an hour and a half from here. You can go up to rural Pennsylvania two, three hours from here. And it was so important to go up to those areas and to speak to those people. And yeah, the problem was that many of them felt so left behind and so ignored by uh, years of Barack Obama, by years of previous administrations before that, Donald Trump was speaking directly to them. He was speaking to their language. But sticking specifically with the idea of the Rust Belt and the Pennsylvanias, the Michigans, the Wisconsins, that blue-collar working class, what had been solidly Democrat. In Joe Biden, the Democrats had the best possible candidate they could have had. He's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. He's from the working class area. He is blue collar and he speaks about it all the time and reminded people constantly, I am blue collar Joe, I am one of you guys, I understand what it's like, my dad worked hard all his life, my Irish Catholic roots, I'm a working class boy and it helped him because he won those states that he had to win, that he had to steal back from Donald Trump, that Donald Trump you could say had stolen from the Democrats four years ago, um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and he did it. Do you think then that narrative that Trump has changed America is probably a little bit erroneous in that he didn't actually change it, just the rest of the world woke up to the differences between some of the bubbles like DC that we probably are more familiar with and those areas of the US that we don't hear from as much? Yes. And I mean, there's uh, the, you look at the map and you look at the electoral college and the way that whole thing is structured and you had the liberal cities on the coasts, your Californias, LA, San Francisco, and then over the other side, New York, and all Boston, Massachusetts, that would always be Democrat and would always be blue. And you look at the map of blue and red, and you're struck by the blue around the edges and all this red in the middle. And yes, I suppose Donald Trump has highlighted that divide a lot more. And I always feel when you look at the electoral map and you look at who votes for who, the Democrats sort of get this big advantage straight away, because typically the big cities the big populous areas tend to lean Democrat. So they notch up the votes quite early on. And then it comes down to, of course, those key swing states. And yeah, I think under the Trump era, that focus on the swing state and the focus on the divide and the difference has never been clearer. Um, one of the things is a lot of a lot of the time, Republicans and Democrats will agree on what the top issues for the country are. But this time around, they were completely divergent. When you were speaking to people on the ground and reporting on the ground, what things were coming to the fore more? Were they economic differences between Trump and Biden, or were they more things political or things social issues? I was struck in particular after this election by some of the exit polling, which had the coronavirus much, much further down people's order of priority. One would have thought in the year of the pandemic in 2020 that the virus would have been top 
It certainly wasn't. Economy was up there. Race relations actually often featured higher in the coronavirus in, in the exit polls higher than coronavirus. When you go to a Donald Trump rally, the virus was not on their radar at all. And that was visibly evident in the lack of mask wearing, the lack of social distancing, the fact that Donald Trump continued to hold big rallies throughout the pandemic. And when you go to these rallies, you speak to them, you ask them about the coronavirus, it's no big deal. Donald Trump got it, he got over it, he's fine, we'll be fine. A lot of them very have a lot of faith, they would talk about God, we'll get us through this, we're not worried about this virus. So that was well down the pecking order. The Democrats, again, on a visual basis, took the virus far more seriously. Joe Biden's rallies were socially distanced drive-in events. And the sense you got from the Democrats that I would have spoken to was, interestingly, early on, the strong sense was maybe Joe Biden isn't the perfect candidate. We know he's been around a long time. We know he'll be the oldest president ever. We know he had this diverse field at the start of candidates, uh, black, white, gay, straight, young, old women, men. And we ended up with a white guy in his 70s. We know all that, but we just need to get rid of Donald Trump. That was their mission. And the sense was that Joe Biden was the best one to do that. And what used to strike me and what I think could have been a problem and could have been concerning for the Biden camp was that everybody I spoke to on the Trump side loved Donald Trump. Everybody I spoke to on the Democrat side hated Donald Trump and wanted to get rid of him. So there was almost this lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden. He was seen as this person who they felt would be best placed to remove Donald Trump. They were proved right in the end. If the result had gone the other way, I think that would have been the postmortem from the Democrats' point of view going, okay, maybe we just rallied around the idea of removing Donald Trump too much rather than rallying around the perfect candidate. Yeah, because it became about your feelings for Donald Trump or a referendum on Donald Trump, as a lot of people said, we kind of didn't delve too much into his significant policy move so we talked a little bit about tax there, but what do you think has been his most significant ones and ones that might perhaps outlast the next administration? Yeah, I mean, I come back to something I mentioned earlier about in terms of foreign policy, the normalization of relations between Israel and Arab nations that would be praised as a pretty good achievement. And most people on most sides would say, yeah, we, 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 we appreciate that. He has set in train some things that could be problematic. The moving of the US embassy to Jerusalem um, sparked a lot of anger. We didn't really see it bubble up into anything too significant yet. He is drawing down troops in the Middle East. Some analysts would say this could be problematic coming down the line. A sense, perhaps, that some of the things that Donald Trump is doing now could have knock-on effects for the Biden administration in the years to come. And one of the big things for the Biden administration, I think we'll see this early on, will be the rebuilding. The rebuilding of the ties with allies, NATO allies, the European Union, these old traditional allies that were built and these bonds that were forged that Donald Trump eroded. He went down a different route. Joe Biden is going to work to go back to that old regime, and we can see that in his cabinet picks. Lots of names from the Obama era who would have been used to dealing with foreign leaders and foreign policy under the Obama era watch. One of the other things that Trump has left us with is a growing uh, erosion of trust in the media and a growing, I guess, hatred as well, something that we don't feel as acutely here, but it's definitely seeping in at times to the discourse. What has it been like for you in a country where that uh, atmosphere pervades even from the you know top position in the country. Well, you, you see firsthand the Donald Trump relationship with the media. I suppose when you go to his rallies and he will be on the stage doing his speech, 
And at every rally, he will always go and look at the media down the back there, boo. And then all the people in the stage, in the, in the arena will turn around and boo the media. And we're all standing there in our area. But then I have to go up afterwards and interview them and say, hello, I'm from an Irish TV station. Can I talk to you, please? And they're always perfectly nice. So you had this bizarre situation where they're turning around booing us. Then I go up with my microphone, talk to them. Now, I'm under no illusions. Probably one of the big helps for me is that they wouldn't know RTE. It didn't mean anything to them. It wasn't Fox. It wasn't CNN. So it wasn't a particularly leaning media. So I never got too much grief in that regard. I will say the most recent Donald Trump event I covered was a Stop the Steal march in Washington on Saturday. These are these rallies that have been held a couple of times now since the election, claiming that the election was stolen from Donald Trump and that the whole thing was rigged. And I did feel more hostility towards the media on that occasion. There was a bit more, oh, your fake news, you know, boo, as they drove past, as they walked past us, even though they wouldn't know the station and they wouldn't know what we were talking about. But it was just, we weren't reporting what they would have liked us to report, which are Donald Trump's baseless claims of fraud and uh, a rigged election. So is that your first time that you felt that hostility, like before, like being in a, a stadium or being in an arena like that, where people are booing you and you're not, you know, the quarterback for the local team? How did that make you feel? Like, that's not generally what we'd be used to as journalists. No, but we're used to it with Donald Trump for the last four years. It's pantomime. It's theater. It's him doing this. Donald Trump, remember, his relationship with the media, while he loved to scorn the media and say, they've given me the hardest time ever, they're fake news, they're the enemy of the people. He loved courting the media. He always has. He did it as a property developer in the 80s. He would phone up newspapers pretending to be somebody else just so he'd get a good headline in the paper about him. He loves the media and he loves being on television. What bothers him is when the message isn't what he wants it to be. Of course, his biggest enemy and his biggest, the crowd he criticizes the most are CNN. Yet you can see from his Twitter feed that he watches CNN all the time because he tweets about something that has just happened on CNN. So you have this weird situation where he loves to portray the media as the enemy. He loves to portray himself as this victim of media coverage, while at the same time, embracing the media and loving being on television in the most primetime way he possibly can. And of course, we saw that at the height of the coronavirus pandemic as well, where he used to give these nightly, in inverted commas, coronavirus briefings, but they just ended up being these rambling rants of him on stage because it gave him an opportunity to get some primetime TV viewership. I hope our listeners will forgive me asking one more inside baseball question because I'm really interested in what the relationship between everyone in the press corps in the White House was like. Was there camaraderie between the journalists and reporters in the White House or did it become fractious at times because there was such obvious differences in how various outlets dealt with Trump and covered his administration? Yeah, well, what, what I have witnessed is this very interesting evolution of, I suppose it was a pretty even divide. I mean, t TV is, 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 is my game. So if I, if I can stick with the TV stations, I suppose first you had this split where sort of the Fox News was pro-Trump and then your MSNBC and CNN was anti-Trump. And that was the divide that we saw. And that was the partisan nature of the media here and sort of what everybody got used to. What I have find, found fascinating to watch just in the run up to the election, and then most definitely during the election and most definitely in the last few weeks is the change from Fox News. We saw it emerging. One of their very strong Sunday presenters, Chris Wallace, gave Donald Trump a very tough interview in the summer. He was the first debate moderator and they clashed and it was a disaster. You'll recall Donald Trump kept interrupting and interrupted the moderator as much as he interrupted Joe Biden. The love was starting to be lost between Donald Trump and Fox News. On election night, Fox News called Arizona first 
for, uh, for Joe Biden very early on. Everybody else did in the end, and Joe Biden won Arizona, but very early on. And this enraged Donald Trump. And in the days and weeks that followed, Fox News showed itself to be a station that wanted to promote truth and fact and figures and data and actuality and spoke about how Joe Biden was winning this election. And that did not sit well with Donald Trump. He now has switched to these other far more conservative networks called Newsmax and OAN, One America Network, who he loves because they preach his message and they carry his stories about election fraud and rigged voting machines and machine switching votes. So that for me has been a very interesting evolution to witness over the last few weeks and months. This clear partisan divide in terms of media that has now gone one way and Donald Trump, all his tweets of late have been about Fox News failing ratings and how, you know, they've abandoned me and look at them, it's damaging them uh, in, in their ratings and uh, they'll regret it, you know. And then, of course, there was talk for a while, Sinead, of uh, Donald Trump setting up his own TV station to rival them, but uh, we haven't heard much about that of late. I wouldn't be surprised. Does all of that kind of stay in front of camera instead of, you know, people, obviously people are civil and, and nice to each other off camera, I'd imagine there's no actual physical or, or um, real divide when it comes to all of you operating together in the in the press corps. Absolutely not. I mean, yes, you, you, there is no divide. Yeah, everybody's there to do the same job. And I come back to the Fox News people that oftentimes, they're all very professional journalists. I mean, the on-the-ground reporters for Fox, like their White House correspondent, lots of their reporters on the field, are quite fact-based, normal, unbiased, balanced journalists like the rest of us. I think where Fox really went down the route of being very pro-Trump, and actually these would still be the ones that are, are Sean Hannity, who's a friend of Donald Trump. He presents a primetime show. Tucker Carlson, very pro-Trump. So they're sort of primetime anchors on air in the studio. Many of them would still be very pro-Trump. On the ground, the reporters would be just doing the same job as the rest of us. We've obviously already brought up the pandemic and it's going to be the biggest item on Joe Biden's list. What can he possibly do first, Brian? Well, Joe Biden's big thing at the moment is my first 100 days in office. And it's all about 100 things will happen in my first 100 days. So he wants 100 million doses of the vaccine administered in his first 100 days. He wants Americans, all Americans, to wear masks for his first 100 days. And he says, if you do this, it would reduce the virus spread. He is adamant about reopening schools. That's a big problem here still in the US right now, where I am, for example, in Washington, DC, the schools have never reopened, not even since March. Other cities, other districts, I mean, look, this is the story of the United States, that every, not even every state has different rules and different governance. Every county, every city has their own rules, their own governance, and their own government that will decide how things are run. So you have this very patchwork affair right here, right now, in terms of school reopening, also businesses reopening. I mean, and we saw, certainly with the virus, we saw Donald Trump, as I mentioned earlier, quite focused on keeping the economy opening, keeping the businesses open. Uh, Joe Biden, I think, will go more down the route of public safety, mask wearing. He will have to be careful, though. If he decides to become Mr. Lockdown and shut everything down and order the businesses, it will damage him hugely uh, and he'll become known as the lockdown president and that's what he doesn't want so it's a balancing act for joe biden promote the public health promote public safety while at the same time trying to keep the economy ticking over i can't believe schools are still aren't open are people not absolutely pulling their hair out yeah i mean look to, to, to talk personally for a moment uh we are we have two daughters they're at home um being homeschooled well they have virtual they're in the virtual learning so they log into their zoom call every morning the school's doing what they can the teacher's there they try their best. 
we're lucky. My wife is actually a teacher. She's a primary school teacher back in Ireland, and she's on a four-year career break to be over here with me. So she's helping out. She's there with the kids. So we're lucky in that regard. I would imagine, though, for those parents, and I'm sure it's the same in Ireland during the lockdown when there were schools, the, 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 maybe the two professional parents on their Zoom calls trying to do their things and trying to juggle the kids. It's very, very tough. Yeah. And what's been interesting here with the schools is, as I say, that patchwork not far from here, maybe a county in Virginia or a county in Maryland, everything's open. And then you go to another county and they're in two days a week. But yeah, DC probably has been one of the more strict ones. It hasn't reopened at all yet. So it's been a, it's been tricky, but you know, we're getting through it. Much like uh, where you're all probably hoping to get the skills open, I'm sure Joe Biden's hoping that this, you know, will be a short period of time in his administration um, and not take up the entire four years. But once he has his 100 days kind of boxed off and he has looked at this is what I can do right now to try and tackle the pandemic and get uh, people back to work and get skills open again. What's the things that he wants to tackle first? What does he want to unravel from the Trump administration? What's on his, I will absolutely have failed in my presidency unless I do this? I think some of the big unravelings will come in the area of foreign policy. We'll see him rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. He said he'll do that on day one. We'll see him rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. We'll see a reshifting of the focus. Remember, Donald Trump had this tendency to embrace the old traditional enemies. You could write a whole book, and I'm sure several are being written as we speak, about the Donald Trump-Russia relationship, never criticizing Vladimir Putin, siding with Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence. We have the other very interesting dynamic with North Korea and Kim Jong-un. They began as enemies, tweeting, calling him fast and short and a little rocket man, becoming, we fell in love and we're best friends. And a similar relationship with China started well, patchy in the middle where they were trying to work out a trade deal, and then ended horrendously with the coronavirus, Donald Trump calling it the China virus every chance he can and blaming China for the entire thing. Joe Biden will return, I think, to a more normalization where we will see North Korea, Russia, and China being put back in that category of adversary, and we will see NATO allies and the European Union and alike being restored as the old traditional ally. That's on the kind of foreign front. On the domestic front, we've talked about the, the big winners for Trump's administration were high earners who saw big tax breaks. Who will probably be the biggest winners from a Biden administration point of view? Well, I suppose first off, you, you say domestic, but maybe we could look international. First off, I would imagine the uh, trading partners in the likes of the European Union will uh, feel that they'll benefit from um, the, the more normalization, particularly of trade relationships. Uh, removal of tariffs, those sort of fractious trade wars that we saw under the Trump administration. I think uh, everybody in Ireland is looking at Joe Biden and saying, oh, he'll be a great president for Ireland. And of course, he speaks of his Irish roots all the time. But I think we all have to be careful here as well and temper expectations. He has to, he is the president of the United States. He will do what is important for America and he will do what is best for America and the American people. And that's the way it has to be. Um, I think we should be careful not to think that, you know, everything will be better, everything will be fixed, everything will be normal. You know, it's, he is, as I say, the President of the United States. And while some internationally may be welcoming his election, he has a lot of challenges ahead. And I think when you look domestically, he is this huge balancing act now. So he won this massive vote, he was helped there by the African-American community, by the Latino community, by 
blue-collar workers in the Rust Belts that we mentioned earlier. What is he going to do for them now? There was a lot of promises made. There was a lot of faith put in him. So I think the pressure comes on him. And then remember the dynamic that we have in the Democratic Party as well at the moment. Joe Biden was a down-the-middle moderate, smack-bang in the middle. He has to appease everybody now. You're Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the far left. Uh, you have the moderates like uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House. You have clashes there. So you have this old traditional wing of the party that he needs to appease. You have the newer, younger, more liberal, progressive side of the party that he needs to appease. So I think he will have his work cut out for him to keep everybody happy. And of course, that is impossible to do. But expectations are very, very high and maybe too high, both on an international and a domestic uh, level. From the, the outset, he really tried to make the ticket a team ticket. So Kamala Harris and himself, he was saying, vote us in. He, he seemed to really want to bring her with him. And obviously that was a huge, hugely significant uh, win. What are her ambitions? Um, what are What's top of her achievement list? And does it differ from Biden's? Kamala Harris is a very interesting character. And what struck me was when she was announced as his vice president, it was in the summer, everybody knew it was coming. For weeks, this was what was going to be happening. And as soon as she was announced, the Trump campaign had the attack ad ready to go. But it was this really kind of watery, um, I think they said the worst they could come up with is that she'd flip-flopped on a couple of policies. They didn't know what to do with her. Kamala Harris is a very interesting politician from that perspective. She comes from this background as being this tough cop, this prosecutor in California, where she was criticized by some on the left of the party for being too tough on African-Americans, for not speaking up against police brutality, for being too quick to jail people. And that angered the progressive left-leaning side of the Democratic Party. But the tough cop image then helped her appeal to maybe the more moderate and to appeal to Republicans who were on the fence. It undercut Donald Trump's message that I'm the president of law and order because now you had this person coming through joining Joe Biden on his ticket. She is an excellent debater. She is an excellent inquisitor. We saw her in the Senate when she was grilling people before Senate committees. Her years of training as a prosecutor really came out. Now, they're not really attributes that one can bring to the vice presidency, but she has experience, she has strength, she has knowledge. I think she will be a very powerful ally for him. And again, I come back to the Trump campaign, not really knowing a whole lot about her, not really knowing what to do with her. And maybe that's something that's going to be there for a while for Kamala Harris, that people aren't exactly sure where she stands on policy. And remember, she failed in her own bid to win the Democratic nomination. And one of the problems there was that people did say she flip-flopped on issues like healthcare and law and order. So a little vagueness, perhaps, about maybe we don't know as much as we'd like to know about this person. But I'm sure it'll come more to the fore. And of course, all the focus will be on her, potentially in four years' time, because the strong suggestion being that because of Joe Biden's age, he may only be a one-term president, and then she would be the obvious choice for the Democratic nomination. Yeah, speaking of obviously the role she's taking, the vice presidential role, do we know what Mike Pence's plans are to do next, the outgoing vice president? I mean, Mike Pence, like any politician, I presume has his eyes on the White House, but now he's in this bizarre conundrum where do I step aside for now? Do I sever my ties from Donald Trump and walk away? But then I'm walking away from 74 million votes. And if Donald Trump in four years time runs, well, forget it, Mike Pence, you know. So he's tied to him now. 
he's probably weighing up, is this politically advantageous for me to remain tied to him? Yes, he's the 74 million votes, but if he runs himself, they're his votes, not my votes. And remember, Mike Pence really helped Donald Trump with that conservative Christian vote, got in the religious vote, so that's still there. He still has that power. I don't know if you know this, Sinead, but Mike Pence used to be a radio presenter and a breakfast television presenter. So maybe he'll go back to that career if the politics doesn't work out for him anymore. I did not know that and I would not have guessed it. I'd say you could have given me a hundred guesses and I would not have gone for American broadcaster. I, I, in I, the... should, I should say it was a conservative Christian radio station, which probably won't surprise you. But yeah, that's what he was. He used to be a broadcaster. So maybe he'll go. Maybe he'll move to Doonbeg. You know, his cousins live in Doonbeg. Uh, they have a, a pub there. So perhaps. Perhaps, uh, perhaps he'll retire to Ireland. Who knows? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really hard to make any predictions around the, the Trump administration. But Trump himself, from what you know of him, with the media courting we were talking about, will he remain front and centre in US politics? Will he try and revert to, you know, staying front and centre in TV land? Or what would your prediction for his 2021 be? I think he will look at the fact that he got 74 million votes. He is adamant that it was stolen from him and it was a fraud and he's the rightful winner. He is doing all of this to ease his own ego. He doesn't want to admit that he lost. He knows he lost. The numbers say he lost. Everybody said he lost, but he won't admit it. He is adamant that he's the real winner and that it was stolen from him. Throughout the Stop the Steal campaign, as they call it, over the last few weeks, himself and Rudy Giuliani and his lawyers fighting case after case after case. They lose them all, but this costs money. And Donald Trump sends out emails to his base of supporters saying, I need you to contribute to the fund to fight this election fraud. And he has made something like $200 million off that. And in the fine print of that fundraising effort is a percentage will go to the legal fund. And then the rest goes into this political action committee, which is how they fundraise here for politicians. So he now is leaving office with a big bank of cash that he can use for future campaigns. I don't think he'll go away. Will he run in 2024? Four years is so long in politics, and it is an eternity in US politics. And who knows? I mean, the big questions about Donald Trump are legal questions. And will this investigation of the state of New York and his into his charity cause him legal difficulties? Will this investigation into his kids and how they ran the organization, will that cause him, cause him difficulties? Are we going to see preemptive pardons? Are we going to see legal problems for him? Are we going to see financial problems for him? You saw the New York Times reporting in the last few weeks that he has debts coming due of 400 million, that a lot of the properties are not profit making for him, that he's not as wealthy as he would like to let on. So if he's going to run into legal trouble, if he's going to run into financial trouble over the next four years, that of course would temper any sort of a run. But he will still have the base. Trumpism will still exist. So what are we going to see there? A Mike Pence, a Donald Trump Jr. So the attitude will still be there, the, 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 the ethos, the base, the support will still be there. Will it be him in person? We'll just have to wait and see. Do you think the media will stay as interested in him? Like we've talked a bit about um, the things he's good at, and one of them is uh, making sure that he is always the center of attention and a big attraction um, for media outlets. Has there been a shift in that or will media outlets remain as enthralled with him as they have ever been? They are still enthralled with him to a point, and they're enthralled with him because he is still the president of the United States of America. He's the most powerful politician. He has the biggest pulpit in the world. Everything he says has import and relevance from that regard. The problem for Donald Trump is so much of what he's saying in recent weeks is factually 
false and incorrect. And you look at his Twitter feed now, and twi Twitter puts these disputed labels. And his Twitter stream is just dispute after dispute after dispute after dispute. He continues to do it, though. He continues to lash out all of these statements. I cannot help but think that Joe Biden's inaugurated on the 20th of January. On the 21st of January, is Donald Trump going to wake up and look at his Twitter followers and they'll have halved from 80 million down to 40 million? Is he going to start making statements and standing up at podiums and is he going to realize, you know what, all the cameras haven't turned up. I'm not getting the network billing. It is inevitable that as soon as he ceases to become the president of the United States, the interest will wane. He's still box office. Donald Trump used to joke, you know, uh, CNN will miss me. MSNBC will miss me. Fox News will miss me because I'm good for ratings. And he's not wrong there. He's good for ratings. But when he's no longer the president of the United States, one would imagine that the import will lessen and there won't be as much interest. But he'll still be there and he'll still be tweeting and I'm sure he'll still be making as much noise as he can from the outside. From your own point of view, are you a bit worried as Washington correspondent that the interest level in the news that you're bringing from there will have lessened too when Donald Trump leaves? It's interesting. So when I was going for this job and when I got the job, I spoke to all the previous Washington correspondents. Katrina, my most immediate predecessor, she was in the height of Trumpism. So she just said, it is going to be a roller coaster. You're going to be so busy. It's going to be Trump, Trump, Trump every day. And she wasn't wrong to, to, to a degree. Most days was, was a Trump story. Uh, her immediate predecessor was Richard Downs. <laughs> he told me the exact opposite. Well, he, he told me the reality. He said, Brian, you were going to be going into a very, very different experience than I had, he said, because he covered the Barack Obama presidency. And the, the, the joke here, or the, the, the rhyme was, no drama Obama. People joke, oh, the biggest controversy was one day he stood up at the White House podium and he was wearing a tan-colored suit. And all of a sudden, people were up in a flat. So what I will say, though, and what Richard said to me was, he didn't have day-to-day -day White House stories but he had so much else to report on. This is a massive country. And the name of our type, the title of our job is Washington Correspondent. But really, you're the North America Correspondent. You're covering this vast country. And I, over the last three years, have not just been doing Donald Trump. You're covering court cases involving Irish people. You're covering tragedies. You're covering murders. You're covering big uh, events like Katie Taylor fighting in Madison Square Garden last year. You're covering Conor McGregor fighting in Las Vegas. You're covering Conor McGregor fighting on the street and his subsequent court cases. So you will always be busy doing other American stories. So I think for me next year, I think, I mean, who knows who can predict the day-to-day -day White House goings on. Yeah, that will probably lessen in drama and controversy and newsworthiness, but I am under no illusions that it will be replaced with many, many other stories. This is a vast country and there's always things to report on. And obviously we're still in the midst of a pandemic of which America is suffering really badly. So there obviously won't be a, a dearth of news stories to cover. Uh, Brian, you've agreed to do a bit of a quick fire round with us because obviously there is a lot to have gotten through in the last four years. Um, but we want to touch on a little bit of Trump's achievements, his attitudes, and perhaps his failures in different areas, and Biden's future plans um, for big policy um, arenas. And so just going to first start off healthcare. Okay, so healthcare. Uh, Donald Trump spent the last four years trying to repeal and replace what's known as the Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. Joe Biden, understandably, because he was there during the Obama administration, wants all of that restored. So that's what we're going to see. We're going to see Joe Biden moving back into this Obamacare situation. Brexit and its many, many deadlines. 
So Donald Trump actually reporting just this week that uh, the Trump administration was already in the process of doing a little mini trade deal with the United Kingdom. Remember, Donald Trump, anti-EU, very pro Boris Johnson, a friend of his, very pro UK. And we had movements underway to do some sort of a mini trade deal. In recent days, lots of senior Democrats coming out saying, uh, 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 we're more interested in doing an EU trade deal first then we look at the UK and then you have all the complications and all the things that have been getting all the headlines and an Irish perspective, Joe Biden and senior Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, Richie Neal, all coming out saying, if Brexit messes with the border, if it messes with the Good Friday Agreement, no trade deal. Climate change. So day one, Joe Biden is going to make efforts to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Donald Trump, as we know, took America out of the Paris Climate Accord. Donald Trump, pro-oil pro-fracking, pro-steel, pro-industry. Joe Biden, careful not to be too anti those things. He's spoken about moving away from oil, moving away from the old industries. But if he knows that if he goes too far and shuts all of those things down, he's in big trouble and he'll lose a big voting base. Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter dominating the headlines throughout 2020. Donald Trump very much focused on the negative elements of it, the violence, looting, and burning that happened after some of the protests. That was the minority. The vast majority of these protests were peaceful, but Donald Trump zoned in on the defund the police and they'll come to your neighborhood and they'll burn the thing down. That was his way of looking at it. Joe Biden very much taking the other side, saying we want racial equality, we want criminal justice reform, but he and so many presidents before him have failed. America remains a very divided country, remains a country with its huge racial divisions. He has a huge task ahead of him if he thinks he's going to fix a problem that president after president after president before him failed to address. The economy. So we spoke earlier about taxes. Donald Trump very much cutting the taxes, would have done another tax cut, promised it in his election campaign, I'll cut your taxes further. The Democrats turning it around and saying, this was a tax cut for the wealthy. Joe Biden has vowed that he will increase taxes on high earners. But his biggest economic challenge will, of course, be the devastation caused by the coronavirus. That's going to be the challenge for the first 100 days and beyond for him. Uh, the media. We have this divide where we saw uh, uh, CNN and MSNBC very much on the, you could say, pro-Biden side, Fox News on the pro-Trump side. That has been eroded somewhat. That has been blurred. I don't want to say that Joe Biden is going to be the friend to the media. I will point out that after he makes these speeches in Wilmington, Delaware, and they shout questions at him and he won't answer them, and some of them are difficult and controversial, questions about his son, Hunter Biden, being investigated for potential tax fraud. The questions get shouted at him. Joe Biden and ignores those questions and walks off the stage. Media have high hopes that they'll get better access and more answers and more transparency from Joe Biden. Right now, I don't know. And this is uh, obviously a very important one put here by uh, our producer, Nikki. The White House pets. Yes, Donald Trump did not have any pets in the White House. Joe Biden will. He has a couple of dogs. One of them is called Major, and he tripped over the dog a few weeks ago and fractured his foot. So hopefully that won't be happening on the White House lawn once he moves in. And I will have no suggestion that having no pets is a, a slight on someone's ability to be a human being, even, <laughs> <laughs> even if that's how a lot of people are trying to frame the narrative. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for joining us on The Explainer and for just a fascinating conversation just to see how your, your life has unfolded over the last three years and how unpredictable it probably probably is for the next 12 months. Fun times ahead, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, in a great three years, I've had a wonderful time here, one year to go. And uh, thanks very much for having me on. It's great to chat. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Brian for all of his work on this episode. 
If you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the last few months for you to support our work. It's a difficult time for media as advertising revenues fell drastically during the pandemic, but we are and want to keep providing you with valuable, accessible journalism. Loads of you know that it's important for society to have that open access to news and good information like this podcast and have contributed. But a lot of you wanted to see if you could give more regularly. We now have options for you to become a monthly supporter. And if this is something you'd like to do, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.